On this edition of Kiwi Tripsters, we take in some classics in Colombia. Yes, we trip through Bogota and Cartagena. We go Canadian to the mighty city of Montreal. Plus, we discuss some of the world's most popular dishes that do not originate from where you think they would. Indeed, we do. That is all ahead on Kiwi Tripsters. We're back with Kiwi Tripsters Travel Podcast. Get ready and take off to spectacular destinations as we continue our journey and share the inside word on all things travel. Whether it's luxury travel or backpacking on a budget, whether it's cruising or foodie trips, we've got you covered with top tips and tricks so you can have an amazing travel experience. And now, over to your hosts, Mike Yardley and Andrew Seppi. Welcome aboard for a very fresh, gleaming, sparkling edition of Kiwi Tripsters. I'm Andrew Seppi. I'm a gleaming Mike Yardley. You are indeed. With a sparkling Andrew Seppi. Lovely to be with you, Michael. I'm blinded by your sparkle, Andrew. Right. Now, we're kicking off this edition by going full exotic. There we go. And far flung. The sights and delights of Colombia. There's a lot more to the South American country than just cocaine and Pablo Escobar. It's a riveting destination, and let's take a dip with Bogota, uh, the nation's capital. It can be quite chilly in Bogota. Yes. Might need some cocaine to warm you up. <laughs> Well, I wouldn't recommend it. No. It's illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, but I tell you what, I was quite surprised. I was very pleased I did take clothes for four seasons <laughs> <laughs> because you certainly need them in Bogota. It's amazing how Colombia spans the weather extremes. You've got the sun-toasted Caribbean up the north, the chilly heights of the Andes, and Bogota is on the fresh side, on the Andean side. Um, it's actually the world's third highest capital city. So, well, yeah, days start... Certainly crisp, but I love how the city's historic heart is so dramatically backed by those Andean peaks. But yes, if you are planning a trip to Bogota, you will need more than just T-shirts and shorts. Rug up. Now, La Candelaria is the historic heart of the city. Lots of Spanish colonial architecture and atmos. Oh, yes. Mm. I spend the vast majority of my time in La Candelaria, which is the historic colonial barrio, as the Spanish call it, and the Colombians for that matter. So strollable. Outstanding Spanish colonial houses and buildings uh, with llamas being paraded through the lanes past gleaming emerald shops. They've got stacks of museums, two that stood out for me. Uh, Museo de Loro, the mind-blowing gold museum, mm-hmm. and Museo Historico Policia, which has a very compelling exhibition on Pablo Escobar, complete with a model dummy of his bullet-ridden corpse and his favourite Harley. Oh, that's very cheerful, isn't it? Indeed. Now, of course, those who grew up with their formative years in the 80s will remember Miami Vice centred a lot around Pablo Escobar. They did. The very uh, <clears throat> interesting mm. exploits of his cartel. You will struggle to tear yourself away from the street food stalls, uh, meaning generally, and of course you, Michael. Uh, and a word of warning, their eats are, in, well, they do include some truly wild specimens, including the world's largest rodent. Yes. We'll get mm-hmm. to Mr. Rodent in a moment. For starters... I have, I, I have petted, I have fed the world's largest rodent. They're oh, very cute. Oh, for starters, I binged on their very homey chicken and potato soup. Which homey chicken? Is that like a sort of gangster chicken? <laughs> it's a chicken in the hood. Oh, yeah. very good. Yes, yes. Uh, they call it ahiaco. Mm-hmm. 
homey chicken and potato soup, really comforting on a cold, chilly day in Bogota. Yes. Their steakhouses are a match for Buenos Aires, big, succulent cuts of meat. But it was there that, much to my horror, I scoffed at Chihuero, which at the time I assumed was beef. Mm-hmm. Nice it's cut not. of beef. No, it's not. No, no. The Chihuero, also known as the Capibara. Yes. Turns out to be the world's largest, fattest, galumphing rodent. And there's a picture of me feeding a capybara. <laughs> kind of looks on like our a website. Is mm. there really? Mm-hmm. It kind of looks like a cross between a wombat and a rat. Very cute. Well, <laughs> maybe. Um, I have to say, it was so tasty. Oh, dear. Until I discovered what I'd been eating. Indeed. Yes. Colombia is a safe visitor destination. But it's not the place you want to flaunt the latest iPhone in public after dark. No. Use street smarts. Yes. And you'll be, you know, you'll be good. Yeah. Uh, the only taste of potential danger, I have to say, I encountered in Bogota was when I joined a bunch of Bogotanos in a local Tijo bar, mm-hmm. downing beers in a room full of live explosives. What could go wrong here? Nothing. <laughs> the thing is... Hopefully it was smoke-free. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing about these Tijo bars is it's not actually dissimilar to Patonk, what they play, but it's with gunpowder. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and it's Colombia's national sport. So the idea is you throw metal pucks at triangular-shaped explosives that are mounted on a clay board, and the team that clocks up the most explosive strikes wins. Right. As a pyrotechnic from way back, I have to say, I, I did fall in love with this game, and I think it needs to go forth and multiply across New Zealand. Bang. Mm. Beyond the city limits, the Salt Cathedral astounds people, built inside a 500-year-old salt mine, an underground cathedral. It is truly heart-stealing, and yes, 190 metres below ground. It's only been open about 25 years. The sheer size of this carved subterranean mega-cathedral is quite incredible. Wow. They've got the largest underground crucifix in the world rising up from the altar, and the whole interior has been ethereally mood-lit. Very close to Bogota, the mountain crater lake of Gutavita is best known as the source of the myth of El Dorado. Yes. Yes. Rimmed by mountains and beautifully circular in shape, whenever a new chief was crowned, he was painted in gold and rode out to the middle of the lake. Yes. Sounds kind of... hmm. Ceremonial? It does, yes. The thing is, he was then dunked into the water. Yeah. Ah, thanks for that. (laughs) And then the worshippers would gather around the lake and toss gold pendants into Lake Guatavita. Oh, right. So when the Spanish rocked into town, oh, yes, hello, who's this? They heard about this ritual, and that's where the whole El Dorado story comes from. Ah. They thought they had struck jackpot at Lake Guatavita. They forced the tribe to drain their sacred lake. So they could pick up all the gold pendants. Yeah. Right. They wanted to flog all the loot. The mountainside of the lake was even blown up by dynamite to help drain it. Oh, yes. (laughs) And you can still see those scars there today. It's a very moody place and such a great chance to take a walk through the Andean highlands. I reckon Bogota has one of the best-named airports in the world. El Dorado International. Mm. Isn't that very cool? Yes. Very Pablo Escobar too. It is. Uh, Very evocative, very escapist. Yes. So just ahead, we stick around in Colombia and check out Cartagena. Yes. Brilliant. (laughs) Back in a moment. 
This is Kiwi Trips Diz, you're back with Mike and Andrew as we take a swing, yes, a swing through Colombia. Let's head north to the sultry waterfront of Cartagena. It's cultured, it's sensual, and it's full of history. Oh, it's full of so much. Cartagena is the sort of place that lustily sweeps you up and refuses to let you go. Right. There's a story here, I can tell. Oh, my goodness. I could just click the heels of my shoes and whisk myself off to Cartagena right now. Yeah, we're not in Kansas anymore. Thank you, Tonto. Mm. No, Toto. Yeah. <laughs> I think to- Tonto was the lone ranger. That's right. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> Wrong character. Yeah. Anyway, Cartagena is sort of like the Venice of Colombia. It's a city of romance, intrigue, and seduction. Cascades of blazing bougainvillea overflow from pastel toned wooden balconies. You've got your food stalls. You've got your juice stands. You've got a lot of juice. Uh, tempting passers by on cobbled lanes. Magnificent statement architecture stands proud at every turn. Cartagena's UNESCO protected old town is a living, breathing, working town that just happens to look much the same as it did from many centuries ago. And if you didn't notice, Michael clearly had fun in Cartagena. Oh, yes. So, Colombia's crown jewel on the Caribbean is a colonial treasure with an intoxicating mix of beauty and historic brutality, unmistakable romance, mm-hmm. epic legends, and storied drama. Oh, yes. It's mm-hmm. got all that. I do love Las Morales, 13 kilometres of Spanish colonial stone walls, and this is the old town honeycomb of Ellie's, which is where I became besotted, just aimlessly strolling, getting lost, mm-hmm. found, mm. lost again, <laughs> refound. Twilight is truly a magical time in these very atmospheric, seductive lanes. You just don't know where you'll be spirited away to. And all of those ochre-tinted facades of the buildings, they just glow so deeply at sundown. I could imagine they would, Michael. Now, within a short time of the Spanish rocking into town in the mid-1500s, their northern gateway to South America remained the Spanish Empire's most important bastion. Much of the treasure Spain plundered from South America was stored here before their galleons shipped it back across the Atlantic. Yes, boasting so much loot, uh, the port town of Cartagena soon became a tractor beam for buccaneers cruising the Caribbean. Uh, It was a prized target for attack. In the 16th century alone, pirates besieged the city on five occasions, the most famous siege being led by Sir Francis Drake. Of course, yes. When you go to Cartagena now, you can see the house he lived in, in the old town, and numerous sites uh, linked to the Drake legacy, like the Soaring Cathedral, which was partially destroyed by his cannons. Now, back in the old town, a building that will stop you in your tracks is the Palace of the Inquisition. Yes, like something out of Seville, check out the small window with a cross on top. It was from here that the fate of those accused of practising black magic, witchcraft and blasphemy were publicly announced. Yes, and following their denouncement, the heretics were publicly executed in the leafy square with witches burnt at the stake. And it's quite amazing because that plaza today just channels tranquility, but 800 people were gruesomely executed there. Interestingly, Indigenous people were not judged or targeted at all 
during the Inquisition, which is quite surprising given what a pack of bastards the Spaniards generally were. No, the indigenous people were sold. Yes, well, there is that. Yeah. Yes, then as there, opposed to executed, they were put to use. Yeah, exactly, because yeah. then there was a slave trade. Yes. And make your way down to the city's magnificent old clock tower. It stands out immediately across from the old docks and where up to one million African slaves were unloaded by the Spanish and sold. Yeah. Yeah. That sordid colonial backstory has bestowed Cartagena today with a much, much darker population makeup than in most parts of Colombia, and you really notice it. Yeah. Four-fifths of the city's residents have part African ancestry. It's obviously enriched their culture and their cuisine. Cartagena was one of the biggest African slave ports in the Americas, with hundreds of thousands of enslaved Africans brought to the market and deployed to the plantations and mines. Yeah, very, very dark day in history. Yeah. On the outskirts of town, you can discover a cluster of villages that are entirely African, whose forebears escaped from their colonial masters in the 1500s and established their own farming settlements in the countryside. I found this absolutely extraordinary, yeah. Uh, Palanque is the most well-known of these purely African villages. It's like you've just jumped continents. In the old town, Palanqueras... African Colombian women adorned in radiantly colourful dresses with lavish fruit-filled baskets on top of their heads, dressed in Colombian flag-coloured poleras. It is the fun and flouncy national frock. (laughs) They set up fruit stands and promenade through the streets. They'll take photos with tourists, all in honour of the legacy of their ancestors. Coming up, we switch continents and head north to the Canadian powerhouse of Montreal, back in the moat. This is Kiwi Tripsters. You're back with Mike and Andrew, the west coast of Canada. Very familiar to many Kiwis. Vancouver, Whistler, British Columbia, great playgrounds. Uh, But if you're heading east, Montreal is an absolutely top-tier destination. For first-timers to the city, where's a good starting point, Michael? Where did you kick off? I gravitated to Place Royale in the Pontecali Air Museum. Mm. (laughs) which has unearthed the original French settlement in Montreal. They've just spent megabucks illuminating the city's bones, turning them into a canvas uh, for a riveting multimedia show, which just brings the life of the city's history in very vivid order, whisking you through the highs and lows of Montreal's backstory, 500 years of it. So I would say that's your starter. It's dramatic, it's poignant, it's uplifting, and probably the best sized introduction to a city's story I've experienced. That's down in the old port district on the banks of the St. Lawrence River. Serious coin has been lavished on transforming the port district in recent years, right? Yeah, it is just the most gorgeous district. You could spend days here exploring its nooks and crannies. It's all cobbled lanes, horse-drawn carriages, bistros, buskers, stunning architecture. I actually found it left me feeling rather drunk. <laughs> and if you're if you're short on time, the most spectacular street that will charm the pants off you is Roos and Paul, which is fairy tale perfect. A few streets back from the port is Place Dame at Montreal's historic square, which is anchored by Canada's blockbuster cathedral, da 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 Notre Dame Basilica. Yes. The fella who designed it a couple of hundred years ago. I don't Hold on, Notre Dame Basilica. Yes. The fella who designed it. The scholarly yeah. architect yes. who designed it 
<laughs> a couple of hundred years ago, was actually a staunch Protestant. As you do. <clears throat> but he was so enraptured by his masterpiece that he switched sides and became a Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, any excuse? I know. Tragically, Andrew, a lot of tourists are drawn inside this cathedral for one simple reason. Oh, no, it isn't. It's where Celine Dion got married. Mm-hmm. Oh dear. Yes, and people want to go and see where she tied the knot. My heart will go on. Yes. Yeah. Now, a great way to enjoy a parade of Montreal's rock star landmarks is to take a cruise down the St. Lawrence River. It's a brilliant way to soak up the skyline and enjoy some close encounters with the big city landmarks like the Olympic Stadium. Of course. Which wasn't actually finished until 11 years after the Olympic Games. <laughs> Did we have the same person working on the Christchurch post-earthquake as they had on the Olympic Stadium? You'd think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Quite embarrassing for Montreal. Yeah. Um, you will also see the site of Expo 67. Oh, yes. And I loved this because there are so many retro landmarks lingering, like the big geodesic dome, which was the US pavilion, and the theme park, La Ronda is still there, which is home to La Monstra, <laughs> the world's highest wooden roller coaster. Do you remember we went on that rickety wooden roller coaster oh, in yeah. Luna Park? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah, It's like that, but on poppers. Oh, lovely. Yeah. Interestingly, Expo 67, if you think about 1967, <clears throat> it was before the summer of love, before the hippies. Yeah, true. Yeah, so it's a real moment in time. Mm. Now, Mount Royal backdrops downtown Montreal and is commonly regarded as the lungs of the city. Definitely a huge, sprawling park, very much the locals' open-air gym. There's a reason why it looks uncannily similar to Central Park in New York. Yes. It was designed by the same chap. Oh, well, there you go then. (laughs) The other thing you may notice is pilgrims clambering on their knees up 99 steps to the church on the summit. Really? Supposedly, that's required to get your prayers answered. Oh. (laughs) Or either that or someone just made up, you know, some sort of wisecrack idea and it Sort of stuck. Now, for lazy heathens, which should be how you got there, Yes, there is what? <laughs> there is actually a free shuttle. Yeah, I knew it. <laughs> and that will zip you to the top. The only thing I wondered, though, is if you don't go on your knees. I mean, I actually felt tempted to just get down on my knees in the shuttle because I thought if I don't get on my knees, <laughs> will I get divine intervention? <laughs> That's one way of looking at it. Story of my life. Yeah, fun fact about Montreal, it is the world's biggest underground city uh, with so much activity built below street level. I found this quite head-spinning. Mm. Chocker with shopping centres, food courts, museums, all woven together by over 30 kilometres of tunnels. Wow. So, yeah, a huge amount of Montreal is below your feet. It was first built in tandem with the metro train system back in the 60s, but it's just been added to over the decades, and it's such a great escape hatch in the heart of winter, which is what was the reason for them going underground. I found it incredibly easy to get lost in, though, but apparently that's part of the charm. Oh, as it is. Mm. Now, cheap eats. You're always up for those. Bagels and poutine? Pretty much. You can fork out a fortune on gastronomic French dining experiences all over the city, ooh la la, but for cheap and cheerful, poutine is Montreal's go-to comfort food. French fries topped with cheese, curds and gravy. That's it. And it doesn't look particularly appetising, but it does taste great. And when it comes to great bakery battles, Montreal and New York fiercely compete for the bragging rights 
on best bagels. Yes. yes. I've got a better bagel than you, buddy. Mm. The Montreal specimens are smaller, denser and sweeter with a larger hole and boiled in honey water. Actually sounds nicer. <laughs> they are. I think they are. Yeah. Fairmount, by the way, Fairmount is a name to remember in Montreal. This is bagel royalty. So go to their store, Fairmount, and you've got to try their chocolate chip and orange zest bagel. And I'm sure you did. I had a couple. Amongst many others. Mm. Stay with us uh, on the subject of eating. What signature dishes don't actually originate where you may assume they come from? That is coming up. Stay with us. Kiwi Tripsters, you're back with Mike and Andrew. Savouring exotic flavours and signature dishes is one of the travel's greatest rewards, one would say. But some of the world's most popular dishes do not actually come from where you think. They originate from somewhere quite different. And let us begin with Caesar salad. Where would you think it came from? Caesar. Julius? Yes. (laughs) With a name like that. You would think there must be an Italian connection going back to the days of the Roman Empire. Well, people try and sell it as Italian. Yes. It's not. I actually think I've come across the Italians posturing that it's Italian. Oh, yes, well. (laughs) I've also heard people assume that it's a classic American salad. Oh, like the Waldorf. Exactly. Hmm. In fact, this leafy favourite was invented in Mexico. There you go. At Caesar's Restaurant in (laughs) Tijuana. Admittedly, it was created by an Italian immigrant. Cesare, or Caesar Cardini, who one busy day in 1924 improvised the salad with a rather motley assortment of leftover ingredients. Now, what about a Japanese curry? Typically a mix of chicken, potatoes, onions and carrots and a mildly spicy sauce. It's so common, it could well be called a national dish of Japan. Ah, yes, but... It, it has even developed its own regional characteristics in Japan, but it was actually introduced by the British Navy in the 19th century. And they were actually introducing to the Japanese a rather pale imitation of an Indian curry. <laughs> yes. Uh, Japanese curry is often eaten with a side dish of pickles, which is another maritime influence. The Brits love their pickles. Oh, yes. But apparently still aboard Japanese naval vessels today, Friday is curry night. Now, take a cruise in Alaska and... Baked Alaska is sure to feature on the dessert menu, but this delicious ice cream and meringue dessert has nothing at all to do with Alaska. Nor is there any relevance to Alaska becoming part of the USA in the 1860s. It's interesting you say that because that's what I had heard. It was like a celebration dessert of statehood for Alaska. Wrong. (laughs) It has its origins in the 1830s. France, they actually called it the Norwegian omelette. <laughs> As one does. Which had nothing to do with Norway. The Norwegian omelette was introduced to New York in the 1870s by French pastry chefs and originally very expensive. But yes, the baked Alaska originates from France in the 1830s, then went through North America. Somewhere along the way, the baked Alaska name was hatched. But to confuse things even more, in Hong Kong, there's a variation, very, very similar ice cream and meringue, called Flame on the Iceberg, which is flambéed with whiskey. As one does. Yes. Now, what about chicken tikka masala, Indian of origin? No, it is not. Much debate over who first conceived this creamy chicken dish in a spicy orange sauce. It was likely invented in 1960s Britain, some claim by a Bangladeshi chef, some by a Pakistani chef. Don't start an argument 
on that front. No. Oh, my goodness. But in Glasgow, no less. Indeed. Whoever was responsible for it in Glasgow, it has become one of the most popular non-native dishes in Britain. In fact, the UK's foreign secretary 20 years ago declared it as a true British national dish. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. But like Vindaloo. Yes, I was going to say. One of the most deceptively named dishes would have to be Mongolian beef. It is beef, but not Mongolian. Not capybara either. The way the dish is cooked on a hot griddle is more akin to Korean than Mongolian cuisine. And when the dish was invented in Taiwan in the 1950s, the influence of Japanese teppanyaki cooking also played a part. So what do we call that? A Taiwanese-Japanese beef. Yeah, I suppose you would, yes. (laughs) Yeah. The mix of beef or lamb with onions and vegetables actually comes close to a Chinese stir-fry. But if this is all sounding very confusing, don't worry, just tuck in, enjoy it, love it, lap it up. Indeed. Yeah. If you head to Peru, one of the most popular dishes on any self-respecting restaurant menu is lomo saltado, strips of beef with onion and tomato. But is it Peruvian? It is not. No. Migrants are responsible again here. (laughs) It actually originated as a Cantonese stir-fry, and large numbers of southern Chinese immigrants arrived in Peru in the late 19th century. So local cookbooks started featuring this shortly afterwards. Peru and um, quite a few neighbouring South American countries have this, like, fusion cuisine they call chifa, In Peru, for example, it means Peruvian Chinese. So you'll often find stir-fried noodles and wonton soup added to classic South American dishes. As one does. Now, speaking of Peru, pisco sour. Is the national drink really Peruvian? If you ever wanted to start a fight between a Peruvian and a Chilean, ask them where a pisco sour comes from. There are Pavlovian proportions to this debate. (laughs) Part of the problem is they both got grapes from Spain in the 16th century and started fermenting them into a pisco, which is like a a grape brandy. Yes. Peru claims it comes from the port city of Pisco, which is quite a strong claim, I would have thought. Oh, yes, yes, indeed. Then Then. along came Chile and said, well, hold on, we think it comes from our village of Pisco Elqui. (laughs) Uh, Elky. I don't know about the Elkies and Pisco Elky, but uh, hmm. what actually I think is the credibility blow to the Chilean claim is the fact that until 90 years ago, this village of Pisco Elky was actually called La Union. Oh. So did they just change the name to try and claim bragging rights to the origin of Pisco Sour? So on that front, if I had to be the judge, Andrew, not that I am, but um, my unsolicited opinion is that I'd give it to Peru by a nose. Indeed you would. (laughs) And that is it for now. Be sure to like our Facebook page and our show notes are available, as always, on the website, kiwitripsters.co.nz. For great travel reading, check out our articles on our sister site, fortheloveoftravel.nz. That is fortheloveoftravel.nz. We would always love you to rate and review Kiwi Tripsters on the podcast service of your choice, and many choices there are too. If you would like your feedback to be gleaming and sparkling and warm and fuzzy and friendly, that's fine. If you want it to be ferocious, that's fine too. Just fire away. We can take it. And we look forward to catching you next time for our fresh edition of Kiwi Tripsters in a week. Take care. Tilly-ho. And that's a wrap for this episode of Kiwi Tripsters. Liked what you listened to? 
Then join us for our next episode of Kiwi Tripsters, where we bring you more travel inspiration, giveaways, and insider knowledge with expert guests on the show. Connect with us on Facebook and Instagram and visit us on kiwitripsters.co.nz. But most importantly, subscribe and comment on Apple Podcasts and tell us what you think of our show. Till next time, safe travels. Thank you.